Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. As our children are being dismissed, if you'll remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you guys will go out the, the back door there, yeah, thank you. 2 Peter chapter 1, and John, thank you for those kind words. I didn't realize it was Pastor Appreciation Month. I, for all I knew, it was Cybersecurity Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thank you for those kind words. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 1, this morning we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11, if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. Why would anyone want to spend significant time and effort to read and study God's word? You know, why expend the energy and, and discipline to get out of bed early enough to spend time with the Lord each morning? I mean, why say no to temptation when yielding uh, would feel so good? You know, why be loving, patient, kind, gentle, self-sacrificing toward others, especially uh, when they don't seem to appreciate your efforts? In short, what motivation is there to be diligent to grow in godliness? You know, what's in it for us? And perhaps you think it's wrong to, to ask those questions. You know, shouldn't we do those things apart from any benefit to us because they're the right things to do? But you know, Peter asked essentially the same thing, and the Lord didn't rebuke him. Peter said in Matthew 19.27 to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus replied in verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. 
Jesus was saying that the eternal benefits, that eternal benefits should motivate us to endure whatever hardship we now encounter in, in following him. And in our text this morning, Peter lists for us some of the personal benefits the Christian gains from the pursuit of spiritual growth and godliness to motivate us to persevere. But let's remember the context in which Peter was writing. He's writing to believers who were facing a serious crisis in their faith because false teachers were, were infiltrating the churches, and he was very concerned about their faith, that it would remain strong and, and steadfast and, and stable. And Peter knew the best defense against error and the surest safeguard against false doctrine is a thorough and correct knowledge of God and his word. And so he emphasizes spiritual growth and, and development uh, that, that must take place in the lives of, of believers. But in order for this to occur, believers first must understand what they've received as the children of God and, and how they received it. And so in writing this letter, Peter didn't focus immediately on the problems they were facing, but rather he began his letter to trouble believers in the first four verses by laying a foundation for what follows, by reminding them and us of the sufficiency of the resources which our sovereign God has provided for our salvation and for our sanctification. In verses 1 and 2, he reminded them that they had obtained faith from God as a free gift, a faith equal as equal in value in the sight of God as the faith of an apostle, and it, and it came to them by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not by their own uh, works or, or worthiness, but rather it came purely from God's grace. And then in verses 3 and 4, Peter spoke of the spiritual resources that God has graciously provided for us in Christ. And Peter has told us that God has granted to us everything we need, all, all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowing Christ and trusting in his great and very, his, his precious and very great promises. And this is what God did for us at conversion. And then in light of the fact that we have received such a great salvation and every spiritual resource needed to sustain the eternal life that, that is in us and to manifest that life in godly living, Peter then calls us to action in verses 5 to 7. I mean, contrary to the views of some, the sovereignty of God is absolutely no excuse for laziness or, or inactivity. Now we are to make, Peter tells us, every effort. We're to give maximum effort as we strive by His grace to cultivate and, and grow in and build into our lives the divine qualities in verses 5 through 7 as we strive to become like Christ and to live and to act and, and to behave like His people. Spiritual growth and, and godly living involves God's resources and power as the foundation, but also our diligent effort in response. And now as we come to verses 8 to 11 this morning, Peter lists some of the personal benefits the Christian gains from making every effort to cultivate and grow in these seven divine qualities. In other words, to grow in godliness. These benefits are described both negatively and positively. Peter begins with the negative benefits of what we avoid in verses 8 to 9, and then the positive benefits of what we gain in verses 10 and 11. So let's look at verse 8 and the benefit of avoiding use, uselessness and, and unfruitfulness. And you'll notice Peter begins by saying, For if these qualities 
are yours. And of course, these qualities refers to the seven qualities listed in verses 5 to 7. Virtue or moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness or perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. For if these qualities, he says, are yours. And it's important to point out that when Peter says, if these qualities are yours, he is not in any way doubting as to whether the Christians he's writing to have these qualities in their lives. In fact, just the opposite. He assumes that they do. The Greek word translated, are yours, is a strong expression which indicates something that actually exists as one's possession. And because of the Greek grammar and and tense, this phrase is written in, you could literally translate it, for these things being yours, or since these qualities are yours. And the idea is that these things are present in their lives. And so Peter is saying, since these things are yours, you know, they exist in your lives, and he says, are increasing. And the word increasing means to to become bigger or greater in amount, to, to abound or to bring forth in abundance. And the tense of the word implies a continuing process. So, so there must be a constant process of, of increase leading to an abundance of these things. I mean, Peter is saying, I I know you possess these things, but they should not only be present in your lives, they should be increasing, they should be becoming bigger and and greater in amount, they should be abounding in your lives. And this is Peter's concern. I mean, he knows his readers are Christians, and as such, these qualities are present in their lives because they're present in the life of every believer to some degree though they certainly are not all equally developed, but his point is they must be increasing. Peter doesn't want them to be satisfied with the mere presence of these qualities in their lives. He's calling them and us to a holy dissatisfaction with our current state of spiritual growth and maturity. He's saying there must be growth in these areas. There must be development. There must be maturing. I mean, as God's children, we're partakers of the divine nature. I mean, everything we need has been supplied, so now we're to apply all of our effort to grow and mature and and develop these qualities and have them produced in abundance in our lives. I mean, it's like a newborn baby. You know, after it's born, I mean, there's the normal process of growth and development. A a normal baby is uh, born with with all the, the parts that it needs. I mean, take, for example, the, the baby's legs. You know, they're there. He, he moves them around, but, but he can't fully use them as he eventually will. And as he grows, he, he, he kicks them around in the air for a while. And then over time, he, he puts forth a lot of effort uh, learning to crawl, and then he eventually learns to pull himself up and stand while holding on to something. And then, and then he begins to walk just a step at a time and, and very wobbly at first, but then he, he just continues to, to press on, to grow and develop and mature. And this is what we're talking about here with the child of God. We were born again, and when we were, everything we, we, we need has been uh, for a godly life has been supplied, and so now we're to apply all of our effort to grow spiritually and, and to mature and to develop the Christ-like 
this Christ-like character in our lives that we might be conformed more and more into his likeness? And please understand, this is not something that you or I add to the work that God has done. I'm not talking about adding to our salvation because we bring nothing to God's work of salvation. But as a result of our salvation, we are expected to apply ourselves with diligent effort to develop what God has brought about in our lives. And listen, our spiritual growth is not something that we can ever consider completed or look back on and say, well, you know, that's finished. (laughs) No, not at all. Because our spiritual growth and maturity is is a constant, ongoing process that will never be completed this side of heaven. I mean, we never get to a point in this life where we, we can stop growing and maturing as if we somehow have attained. You know, as believers, we possess the qualities that Peter has listed above, but The question is, do they exist in our lives in abundance? You know, are they evident in our lives so that others readily see and experience them through our day-to-day activities and and conversations? I'm sure, I'm quite sure that we all, beginning with myself, could improve when it comes to the abundance of these qualities in our lives. Peter says these qualities being yours and are increasing in your lives, and that reality will, if you'll look back at verse 8, he says, keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word knowledge is the same one used in verses 2 and 3, and it speaks of a genuine, personal, intimate relationship with Christ based on repentance and and faith. It indicates that Peter uh, is referring here to true Christians, real believers to whom God has granted true saving knowledge, and thus they possess the capacity to pursue and to grow in the virtues mentioned. So Peter says the result of these qualities increasing in your lives is that they will keep you. It's present tense. This is an ongoing activity. So he's saying that growing in these qualities has an effect and an an impact on our lives. He says they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. I mean, Peter is warning us here that that it's entirely possible to be a, a true believer and yet live an ineffective and unfruitful spiritual life. The word ineffective is literally unworking, idle, useless. I mean, this does not speak of uh, the the, the person who, who is out of work, but rather it's the picture of someone who avoids work that he is responsible for. And the word unfruitful means basically the same thing, unproductive. And sadly, many believers are not growing. And as a result, they are ineffective and unfruitful. They're unproductive. They have a faith that that makes little or no impact on the world around them. And this happens... When believers begin to rest on 
past achievements. You know, they stagnate and, and they stop putting forth the effort to grow and, and when other priorities dampen their passion and desire for Christ. I mean, we, we are to live wholeheartedly, flat out for Jesus Christ. But so many people get caught up with life in this world. And they stagnate. And they give little effort to the things of God, eternal things, the important things. And if we're not moving forward, we're not remaining static, we're moving backwards. And they become ineffective and unfruitful and and unproductive. Other priorities have dampened their passion and their desire for Christ and the things of God. Because believers are effective because they're growing in their Christian experience. They're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. They're fruitful because they're faithful. You see, effectiveness and fruitfulness in the Christian life is directly related to the extent that we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. The more we grow, the more like Christ we become, the more effective and fruitful we become. One commentator wrote, some of the most effective Christians I have known are people without dramatic talents and special abilities or even exciting personalities. Yet God has used them in a marvelous way. Why? Because they are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. They have the kind of character and conduct that God can trust with blessing. You see, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ leads to growth in these qualities and causes believers to be effective and fruitful and to make a difference in their world. And every believer possesses these character qualities because we we possess the divine nature. But again, we have to put forth the effort to cultivate them so that they increase and, and produce fruit in and through our lives. Listen, we should never be satisfied with where we're at, spiritually speaking. We should always want to have a deeper relationship with our Lord and and know Him better and be more fruitful and more productive. I mean, our spiritual growth must be a constant and an ongoing process. We're we're not to stop pursuing growth in grace. We're to go on to advance, we're to apply ourselves with diligence that we might increase in these virtues. So let me ask you this morning, as a believer, how is your effectiveness and and fruitfulness? What about your productivity, spiritually speaking? You see, we each one need to assess honestly whether these divine characteristics are present and increasing in our lives. And if they're not, then we need to ask ourselves why. And Peter tells us here that the result of these qualities increasing in our lives, the result of spiritual growth and maturity, the result of of growing in godliness is that we will avoid being ineffective and unfruitful. And instead, we will be effective, we'll be fruitful, we'll know Christ better, know Him in a deeper and more intimate way. We will be 
be becoming more and more like him. And as that happens, these qualities become even more and more evident in our lives. You see, loved ones, our faith must be a growing faith if we're going to be useful to God on earth. A growing faith is an effective, fruitful faith. And now in verse 9, we see the negative benefits of avoiding nearsightedness, blindness, and forgetfulness. Look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, some commentators say that this refers to unbelievers. And one reason for this view is that Peter changes from the second person in verse 8 to the more impersonal third person in verse 9, but then he reverts back to the second person in verse 10. And also the word blind would would seem to fit uh, the unbelieving, but, but not true believers. However, to say that those in verse 9 are not truly saved, then you must also say that they were never really cleansed from their former sins, which Peter says they were. And the Greek word translated here, cleanse, is the word from which we get our English word, catharsis. And it means purification, cleansing from defilement or uncleanness. And the switch from the second person to the third person, that's really not an issue. Because it seems that Peter did this because he did not think his readers were in this condition. And so he shifts from you to he because he's not directly accusing his readers. But if his word of warning applied to to anyone who might read this letter, well then, they they better take heed. And Peter assumes his readers are believers. I mean, consider the statements uh, he makes in in verses 1 through 11. In verse 1, he refers to them of those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 4, he says they've escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In verse 5, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. In verse 9, he says they've forgotten that uh, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10, he refers to his readers as brothers. Verse 11, he says, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so while every audience of believers may include some who were lost, it seems preferable to say that Peter is writing to true believers who've been cleansed from their sin, but they're not growing spiritually the way that they should. They're they're spiritually immature, and, and Peter is concerned for them especially in light of the fact that false teachers were infiltrating the churches. You know, the Apostle Paul speaks of immature believers as children who were tossed to and fro by the waves and and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Peter is speaking to believers when he says in verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. The literal translation is, they are blind being nearsighted. You know, blind and and nearsighted are are used here somewhat synonymously. This word nearsighted is also translated short-sighted. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word myopia. And this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used, and it means seeing only what is near. 
unable to see distant objects clearly. Used figuratively as Peter is using it here. It means to be extremely limited in one's understanding, you know, to fail to understand, to be restricted in understanding, or being so limited in understanding as to not realize or as to not comprehend. Believers like this are, are so nearsighted that they're blind to spiritual realities. They're blind to heavenly things because they're occupied with the earth, earthly. They, they can't see what's far off, but only what's near. In other words, they only see as far as the world around them. They only see themselves and, and their present circumstances. They, they lack spiritual insight, and they live for the here and now and, and not for eternity. Their vision is, is earthbound, and they're, they're tied to earthly possessions and, and temporary promises. They've, they've lost all sense of the promises of God that have been mentioned earlier. They don't see the need for these spiritual qualities. Their, their temporal focus quenches their motivation to be diligent, to grow in godliness. They're just caught up in, in living this life. And those focusing on this present life and, and living for themselves will lack these qualities and they will squander the resources and provision of power that God has given them. And they can't see beyond today and, and they forget that Christians are moving toward a goal. Their nearsightedness has, has left them blind to the big picture, the, the promise of eternity and the glory of becoming more like Christ. The person who lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, Peter says. And he continues, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So not only can the nearsighted Christian not see forward, he can't see back. He fails to see the present with the perspective of the past, not looking at today's actions through the eyes that or through eyes that are continually aware of God's great mercy and grace in forgiving their past sins. And these believers have forgotten what God has done for them, or, or at least they're sure living like it. They've forgotten what God has saved them from. You know, they look to the past, the truth of their redemption, the, the forgiveness that once made them so excited has lost its grip on them. God's grace is no longer that amazing to them. They, they've forgotten what it cost the Lord Jesus to purchase their salvation and forgiveness, and so they've become indifferent and apathetic, unfeeling and, and careless. And of course, in one sense, Christians are to forget the past in the sense that we're not to be haunted by guilt for our past, for sin which has been forgiven. But we should never forget what we once were apart from Christ and what we have now become in Christ. And we're to rejoice in our redemption. We're to be constantly filled with, with gratitude. We're to remember that, that our sins have been forgiven. The Apostle Paul never forgot who he was and what God had done in his life. You know, forgiving him of, of his sins and transforming him from a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the gospel. 
I mean, those who remember and, and treasure being forgiven look to Christ in, in gratitude for his salvation, and they seek to live in a way that pleases God because they want to respond to the grace that has been given them in Jesus Christ. And that's what living the Christian life is all about. Living in, in gratitude for the grace that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Peter's words indicate to us that the pursuit of spiritual growth and godliness, cultivating the qualities described in verses 5 to 7, is a divinely appointed means of keeping our spiritual vision sharp and our memories refreshed, preventing forgetfulness. But when we stop putting forth maximum effort, when we start holding back, when we you know, stop giving all diligence and, and drawing on the resources we've been given so that we might grow in our faith and, and live out who we are in Christ, we will become so nearsighted to the point of being blind and will become forgetful. Our spiritual vision will be blurred. So when we look to the future, it'll, it'll just be a haze and the promises of God will be swallowed up in a blur of worldly desires. And when we look back to the past, the, the forgiveness that made us so excited is almost forgotten. And so a kind of spiritual Alzheimer's sets in. And we become a different person than we once were when our spiritual memories were intact. Listen, spiritual growth and development, you know, becoming more Christ-like, living the life that he has called us to live requires applying all diligence. It requires hard work and, and discipline over the long haul because we do not grow without effort. But we are only able to expend this kind of effort because of the grace and strength that he supplies but we have to put forth the effort nonetheless. And I just wonder this morning if we each one ask ourselves, uh, you know, what, what kind of effort is it that I am putting forward to grow and, and to mature, spiritually speaking? You know, when it comes to spiritual things, the things of God, are you putting forth maximum effort? Because as I talk to other pastors and, and see what's going on in other churches and churches across the country, it seems that people are putting forth less and less effort to grow in godliness and, and to be productive in the things of God. And so we have no impact on the world around us, which is why we pray for revival. If we're growing, if these divine qualities are increasing in our lives, we will avoid being ineffective, unfruitful, and nearsighted to the point of blindness and forgetful in our relationship with Christ. So loved ones, you know, let, let, let's encourage one another this morning to, to cultivate these qualities along with gratitude in our hearts so that we might sharpen our spiritual vision and memories.
And now in verses 10 to 11, Peter lists for us the positive benefits we gain for making every effort to cultivate and grow in godliness. In verse 10, first of all, Peter has a word of exhortation. He begins by saying, Therefore, brothers, we're therefore ties this verse with the preceding verses, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, or in other words, because of all that has just been said, brothers, and this word uh, brothers means siblings. It refers to believers as one one's own siblings in God's family, so it refers to both men and women. It's the only time Peter uses this word in his two epistles, and it, it really adds a sense of warmth and, and intimacy and, and affection. And Peter is, is speaking to them as fellow members of the family of God, and he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. The Greek word translated here, all the more diligent, It was also used in verse 5 where it was translated, make every effort. But here, Peter adds a sense of urgency. He says, not merely be diligent, but be all the more diligent. Be all the more eager or or zealous. You know, make, make every effort. Put forth maximum effort. To what? Well, look at verse 10. To confirm your calling and election. To confirm your calling and election. And you'll notice that in this verse, Peter puts calling before election. But chronologically, from God's perspective, election is first and then the call. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul said that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then in time, he called us. You know, Peter, uh, back in uh, verse 3 of this chapter, said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. That speaks of the effectual call, that call to salvation. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter actually speaks of both of them in one verse. He says, But you are a chosen race, There's your election. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth, and then he called us in time. So chronologically, election precedes the call. So that that raises the question, why then does Peter put calling first? No doubt, because in human experience, we first become aware of God's call. When we heard the gospel, God opened our eyes, you know, the eyes of our darkened understanding. He opened our hearts and imparted new life to us so that we were able to exercise our will to believe in Christ. And then after believing in Christ through the study of his word, we come to understand the reason God called us to salvation. And that is because he first chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Our salvation is totally from God. It is is entirely of grace from beginning to end. God called us before we ever called on him for salvation. He chose us in eternity past and then he called us in time. 
And so Peter exhorts these believers to confirm your calling and election. Now the word confirm means to prove to be true. It means certain or verified. The false teachers that, that crept into the churches were attacking the faith of the original readers of Second Peter, and apparently some of them were beginning to doubt their faith. And so he says, be all the more diligent to make certain or sure, to, to confirm, to prove true your, your calling and election. Now it's important that we understand that Peter is not saying He is not saying that by our own efforts we can make the divine call and election more certain than they already are. Peter states calling and election as facts. Our calling and election are certain because that's God's work. They are by God's initiative. And God's eternal purposes can never be thwarted. And this confirming, this Making certain is not for God's sake. God doesn't have any doubt about it. God knows because God is the one who does it. God is the one who does the electing and the calling. And so when Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, it's not because there is a doubt. It's certain. It's a fact. And it's not to prove it to God. Well, then what does Peter mean? What does he mean? Well, he wants his readers and and all believers to be assured of the validity of their faith. He is concerned about their personal assurance. He wants them to be assured of the fact that they really are the called and chosen of God. He wants them to know that that they belong to God. He's saying, make sure for yourselves, confirm for yourselves, not, not for God, confirm for yourselves that God has called you and chosen you to salvation. You know, you need to make sure for yourselves. God knows who who he has chosen. God knows whom he has called. Well, how can we confirm our calling and election? How, How can we verify that? By having a growing faith. By diligently seeking to develop in our lives the seven divine qualities in verses five to seven. Listen, these are these things do not save us but they are proof that we are saved. You know, James wrote something similar about faith. James said, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my, my faith by my works, you know, by what I do. We confirm our calling and election by growing in likeness to the Lord by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, we provide unmistakable evidence that we truly belong to Him. You see, loved ones, a godly life proves the reality of our salvation. Now, certainly, it's it's possible for an unsaved person to do many moral and, and religious duties. I mean, just look at the scribes and Pharisees. But the divine qualities Peter listed here in this chapter, these are matters of a transformed heart and should be evident in anyone who has truly been born again, though in varying degrees. Simply said, 
If we're elect, if we're called, you know, then, then we're born again. And if we're born again, it is going to be absolutely be demonstrated in the way that we live. God's calling and election are evidenced by the character of God being produced in my life as one who has become a partaker of the divine nature. You cannot have the Holy Spirit dwell within you, become a partaker of the divine nature, and have that not change your life and your behavior. If you've been born again, there's going to be a change. And that initial change is more dramatic in some at the beginning than it is in others. But there's going to be a change. But if you've been a believer very long, you've no doubt experienced this situation. We fall into sin. And all of a sudden, our lives seem to be totally disoriented. And when that happens, what is one of the first questions that comes to mind? Well, I wonder if I'm truly saved. I wonder if I'm really a child of God. Our confidence is shaken. And that is why as we cultivate and develop these seven qualities, as they're increasing in our lives, they give us confidence and assurance. I know God chose me in eternity past because there came a time when I believed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His character is being produced in my life as a result. Again, you do not become a child of God by producing these things, but everyone who is a child of God will produce these things in some measure. As one commentator said, one's godly behavior is a warranty deed for himself that Jesus Christ has cleansed him from his past sins and therefore that he was in fact called and elected by God. And so you see, as we pursue spiritual growth and godliness and and we begin to see changes and, and transformations occurring in our lives, this should reassure us that God has in fact called us to himself. You know, these changes serve to, to make our calling and election sure. They, they confirm it in our own hearts. I mean, this, this confirmation of our calling and, and election is our progress in sanctification. I mean, according to Paul in Romans 8, God predestined all the elect to be conformed to the image of Christ. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. I mean, therefore, the, the reassuring evidence of our election is, is godliness. It's, it's Christ-likeness. I mean, it's the pursuit of, of Christ-likeness. It's the pursuit of spiritual growth and maturity through becoming more and more like Christ. And we do that through the means of grace that God has given us, through prayer, through His Word, through uh, con- consistently, uh, you know, faithfully sitting under the teaching of God's Word, being in fellowship. That's part of our sanctification. These are all means of grace that God has given us whereby we grow. And so what do we just think of people who never read their Bibles and very seldom come to church?
The confirmation of our calling and election is our progress in sanctification. And if we're not using the means of grace that God has given us, we're not progressing in our sanctification. And again, we're not remaining static either. We're going backwards. Just like the salmon. I love to watch the salmon when they run. They stop swimming. They don't stay in the same place. They're not making any progress, and they certainly don't stay in the same place. They just go right back downstream. God shows us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And again, therefore, the reassuring evidence of our election, our calling, is godliness. It's Christ-likeness. But the opposite is also true. If your life shows no positive changes and this causes you no concern, then you had better wonder and you had better question whether you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. You had better examine your life to see if you truly are in the faith. And don't hang on to some experience you had in the past. But your present spiritual reality. Because if there was a true born-again experience in the past, there's going to be a, a, a true, genuine spiritual reality in the present. You're going to be growing and making progress. So you see, loved ones, it's essential that these qualities are being produced in our lives and are increasing. Why? They're evidence that we belong to him. They're essential marks of a, a true believer. And furthermore, they, they give us the confident assurance of our own salvation. Looking back at verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And then he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The word practice refers to your pattern of daily conduct. And so as long as the pattern of your daily conduct is to pursue moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, as, as long as that is your daily pursuit, he says at the end of verse 10, you shall never fall or stumble. It can be translated both ways. And in the Greek grammar, this is what they call a double negative, which makes it mean you will never, it is not a possibility that you will fall. So what does that mean? Well, it does not mean they will never fail or that they will always be fully self-controlled or always be full of brotherly affection, always be full of love. It doesn't mean that. And it does not mean that the believer will never have a problem or never sin. I mean, this same word fall is used by James of sin, and it's translated in James as stumble. In James 3.2 we read, For we all stumble in many ways. If you didn't stumble, if you didn't sin, then you'd be a perfect person. There are no perfect people here, beginning with me. The only perfect one is in heaven. So if you didn't stumble, if you didn't sin, you'd be a perfect person. And the form of the word in the Greek emphasizes that, that everyone continually fails to do what is right. 
We all stumble. James says we all stumble in many ways. Yet Peter says you will never fall. You will never stumble. It's not a possibility. So what does Peter mean? What's he talking about? Peter is using the word in the, in the way Paul used it in Romans 11.11. 11, where stumble refers to falling permanently and irrevocably. You know, Paul asked regarding Israel in Romans chapter 11, verse 11, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, or may it never be. Their stumbling was not a final, irrevocable fall from which they would never recover, because God has a future plan for Israel. This is what Peter's talking about here. You'll never fall or stumble in the sense that you will, you will fail to arrive at the appointed goal of ultimate salvation in the glory of his presence. I mean, Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from what? Stumbling. There's our word. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's where Peter's going. You know, we one day will stand in God's presence. When we're pursuing these seven divine qualities and they're being manifested in our lives and, and are increasing, we will never stumble and in the sense of failing to arrive in the kingdom or, or to stand blameless in his presence. Why? Because these qualities provide unmistakable evidence that we truly belong to Christ, that we are partakers of the divine nature, which means we have come into a true and saving knowledge of Christ. A godly life proves the reality of our salvation. And that's the concept of falling or stumbling that Peter is talking about here. The false teachers Peter will deal with in chapter 2 made a claim, but they had stumbled and fallen. They, they were not genuine. They would not arrive at, at the goal because the character of the divine nature was never produced in them, which meant they never did come into the true knowledge of God. They never did have saving faith. And Peter says now in verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For in this way. Well, what way? <laughs> well, this parallels in verse 10, for if you practice these qualities. For in this way, if you practice these qualities, or in the practice of these qualities, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter is not here referring to the fact of our entry. At the moment of salvation, the fact of our entrance into the eternal kingdom, that was settled. How do I know it was settled? Well, for one, uh, Romans chapter 8, you might want to turn there real quick. Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. He didn't lose any along the way. It's the same group all the way through. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Why? Because our salvation is all of God from beginning to end. So Paul is not refer- Peter is not referring to the fact of our entry, because at the moment of, the, of our salvation, that, that fact was settled eternally. Peter is referring to the event itself. And the only basis of admission to the heavenly kingdom is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all of those who have a personal saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to be a glorious event. I mean, there will be richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Literally, it is the entrance will be, pro- will be provided richly for you. And the word provided is the same word used in verse 5 where it's translated supplement or add. You remember what it means. It means providing generously, abundantly, lavishly, not, not holding anything back. And so Peter is telling us, I mean, this is, this is exciting. Peter is telling us that our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly, generously, abundantly, lavishly provided. It's going to be a wonderful welcome home, a, a rich and gracious welcome in which we will receive much more than we ever, ever, ever deserve. In all the struggles of, of going the distance in the life of faith and in a world that is hostile to God and hostile to the gospel and therefore to us will pale into insignificance in light of the welcome that we are going to receive into God's eternal kingdom in heaven. And as Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And the glory coming far outweighs our, our present difficulties, any suffering that we might experience. I mean, nothing that happens to you and I in this world for the cause of Christ, no, no difficulty, no suffering, no, no persecution in this life can even be compared can't even be compared to what is to come and to the glory which shall be revealed to us. And so Peter begins his letter to troubled believers by reminding us of the great salvation that we have in Christ. But he wants us to know the spiritual resources we have. He wants us to know that, that God has granted to us everything we need for life and godliness through knowing Christ and trusting in his all-sufficient promises. And he talks about our response to God's grace. And Peter's point is this, because God in his grace has saved you, you're, you're given, and you're given everything that you need because you have all that is necessary at your disposal. Use the resources that are available to you and, and put forth diligent, maximum, lavish effort to grow in your faith and to grow in godliness. Make every effort. Take your faith seriously. Put forth the maximum effort to cultivate these divine qualities. Why? 
Because in response to His amazing grace, this is what we should want to do for Him. We should want to give Him the best of our efforts, not the leftovers. Because in doing so, in the present, our lives will be effective and fruitful for the Lord. It will give us assurance of our salvation. It is evidence of the reality of our faith and that we will never fall away from the Lord, not permanently or irrevocably. And it also means that in the future, and it's coming, in the future the Lord will welcome us into His eternal kingdom where we will dwell with Him in indescribable blessedness forever and ever and ever and ever. Loved ones, a real faith is a living faith. And a living faith is a growing faith. So let me ask you this morning, what kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? Is it a faith that is based on an experience that you had years ago? And not really much change has taken place since then? Is it an intellectual faith? One that may even touch you in your emotions? But isn't isn't really a saving faith? James would call that a demon faith. Because he says even the demons believe and tremble. They're orthodox in what they believe. They could sign any orthodox statement of faith because they believe all of that. They know it's true. And it affects them. They tremble. But they're not saved. So is your faith based on an experience with no change? Or is it an intellectual, intellectual facts that may even touch you in your emotions? but hasn't saved you? Or is it a living faith and therefore a growing faith? And it doesn't mean that we're always growing by leaps and bounds. Sometimes I think the Christian life is like trying to climb up a real steep sand dune. You know, there's three or four or five steps forward, maybe a couple back. Six, seven, eight more forward, two or three back. But it's the desire and the direction is there. There's a, there's a moving, constant moving forward. There's a desire to move forward. There's a desire for God and the things of God. And that would include the Word of God and the people of God. So what kind of faith do you have? It's important that you, that you and I examine ourselves. I mean, our faith should stand up to the scrutiny of Scripture. Because look, you, there's a lot of things in this life you can get wrong and come out okay. But you get this wrong, you're done. We're done. If we get this wrong, we're done. What kind of faith do you have?
May the Lord enable each one of us to examine our lives, not in light of this person or that person, not in light of the pastor or the elders, not in light of your spouse. May God enable us to examine our lives in light of his word. And if we want to compare ourselves to someone, then let's compare ourselves to Christ. Because he's the example. What kind of faith do you have? Let's stand. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.